Thank you, Jay and team, for leading us in worship. For those of you who may not know, uh, my name is Dan, and I am here as a transitional pastor. Why transitional? We'll get to the message in a minute, but you know, since this is my first Sunday preaching, I thought you know, we should talk a little bit about what that means. Uh, a transitional pastor is not an interim pastor. But what's the difference? Being in transition acknowledges that things are moving and changing, that we are preparing for something, that we're heading somewhere specific. There's a transition. And in our case, we are transitioning toward a new senior or lead pastor, hopefully in the near future. But in a transition, we move and we act, like I mentioned last week. It's not an interim where we're just waiting. Interim sometimes has that feeling of, you know, we're just going to bide our time. We're going to survive. And from what I gather, we've been in transition for a long time. Some of you have been here for decades, and I've heard we've been in transition for a decade. It doesn't mean that's how it's always going to be. I recognize that me being here in a temporary role may, for some of you, feel like, here we go again. But there is something better in store. And God is going to take us there. Amen? All right. Now that that's out of the way. There's something about home that is really important. I was born in Oxnard, California. I was raised there. My family moved back and forth. My dad was a physician, and he worked at St. John's Hospital uh, as a pediatrician and had his private practice in Oxnard. And we moved back and forth between Oxnard and Camarillo. At one point, we moved to Camarillo. I'm like, oh, the drive's a little too far in the middle of the night coming down the hill. And so my, we moved back to Oxnard to be really close to the hospital. And we kept on moving back and forth. And the place where my parents live now in Camarillo is not the house that I grew up in, but it's still home. For sure, the place matters, but home is more than a place. It is family. It's the place where I am welcomed and where I am loved. I admit it's a little bit weird. I, you know, I'm 40 years old now, and last week, for those of you who may not know kind of what we're doing here in this transition time, my family and I, we live in Monrovia, California, on the other side of Pasadena. And so it's a bit hairy to keep driving all the way through in rush hour traffic. From get to Pasadena to Monrovia during rush hour, it takes 45 minutes. And it's like only two towns over. But that's how it is over there. So I can get from here to Pasadena, and then I got another 45 minutes to go. And so what we're doing is I'm commuting. I'm coming here on Sunday morning. I'm staying with my parents on Sunday nights and Monday nights. And my poor wife is holding down the fort with our four kids for a couple of days. And then I head back as soon as I can on Tuesday to kind of help out and, and be back with the family. But for those times at home, I go home with my parents. I'm 40 years old. And, I'm, you know, we go home to visit my parents frequently with the kids, but it's a little, it feels a little different when it's just me because I'm like the kid again, right? I go there, and I'm a little kid. My mom, you know, she, she set out dinner and everything, and before I left Monday morning to come here to the office, 
she set out for me on a little plate two fish oil pills and a B complex. <laughs> I'm 40. I wanted to give her this look. Can you pull up the Tommy Lee Jones picture? I wanted to give her, I had this look in my heart, okay? You see? Like, for real? But all joking aside, there's something important that's going on there, and that is, I am home. I am loved, and I am cared for. I know it's okay. I took, you know, I took the pills, okay? And I smiled, and I thanked my mom. And I did it because I know it comes in the context of love and care. Now, I know that I'm pretty lucky. It's something that I don't want to ever take for granted. It's something that a lot of people don't have, where home is a place of safety and joy. There are strained family dynamics, histories of mistrust, and in some cases, histories of abuse. What should be home is not always home for everyone. And I want to acknowledge that. But even in those situations, we understand what home is supposed to be. We know that it's not right when it's broken. When home is broken, it is devastating. Things fall apart. Our emotions are all awry. And it is a, such a difficult thing to go through when home is broken. But when it's restored, well, that is the story of Christ's mission. Today, we're going to look and turn to what is, for many of us, a very familiar passage of Scripture. We're going to look at what's traditionally called the prodigal son or the lost son, a parable that's found in Luke chapter 15. And as we'll see, the story is a lot more than just about a child who loses his way. Instead, we're going to see that it is essentially about God's extravagant love that is available to all of us. Now, we're going to spend three weeks in this passage. I hope that's okay with you. We're going to look at it from a few different perspectives. But first, we're going to read. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you may. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. Today, we're going to go to verse 24. We'll keep picking up on some of the other verses uh, next week and the week following. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Some translations say my inheritance. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Let's see. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to his feed, fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods, not the mods, the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Uh, Before we continue on, let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would be with us today. Help us to engage with the text. For some of us, Coming to familiar passages can be difficult because we just keep thinking about the same things we've always thought about the passage. But God, help us to be open. Help us to hear and listen to you again today. In Christ's name, amen. This story demonstrates through three central characters. We haven't gotten to the older son yet, which is later on in the text. There's a young man the younger son, another young man, the older son, and a father figure. And through these three figures, the story demonstrates that God's invitation to come home and be a part of his family is given to all. It's an invitation that is extended because God's extravagant love is available to all of us. No matter who we are, where we've been, and what we've been through, God's extravagant love is available to all of us. And today, we're going to look at the younger son. We're going to focus our attention on this character. And then next week, we'll look at the older child. And then the week after that, we'll focus our attention on the father figure in the passage. Today, we're going to look at the younger son. And I invite you to consider how you relate to this young man. After all, as the Bible says in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. No matter how long you have journeyed in the faith, we continue to stumble and get up and stumble and get up. We find our hearts wandering away, and it is easy for us, particularly those of you who have been Christians for a long time, to come to a text like this and think about some wayward child somewhere else. You might think of your own child. But let's think for today about us. And I want to just make two main observations. I'm going to have to get used to this stage. Um, Two observations about this character this younger child. What this younger child does, this wayward child in this text, what he does is he rejects his family. This is more than a story about a young man asking for some money. It's more than a simple, I want to strike out on my own and be independent. Please support me. It's a lot more than that. You know, nowadays, in American or majority American culture, if you went to a parent and asked for your inheritance, it would still be kind of rude, right? Even today, it's rude. It's a little uncalled for. You know, many of you here are grandparents or parents of adult children. Imagine having your adult child coming to you and saying, okay, I'm ready for my inheritance. Right? Well, 
it'd be complicated because you still have, I mean, in your will, I mean, the estate that you're still living in, I mean, it's a little bit complicated. Or you'd still be, maybe let's say you're in my position, and you don't have adult children, and what if I went? I mean, I would not dare, oh, good Lord, I would not dare go to my parents and say, can I please have my share of the inheritance? I mean, if I asked them that, they would give me this look. <laughs> right? Here we go again. Tommy Lee Jones. Like, are you serious? Like, come on now. No. This, this is not okay. But in the, time, in the, in the story time of Jesus, when this parable is being told, it wasn't just a frowned-upon sort of thing. Most scholars agree that what this young person does is tantamount to saying to his father, you know, I prefer wealth over you. I want the money, not you. You are as good as dead to me. Imagine saying that to your parents. Imagine your kids saying that to you, right? I mean, again, I would look at my kids like this. Why is this such a grave offense? Isn't he just asking for some cash that he's going to have someday anyway? Nope, he's not. The man does something that is far worse. You know, people in those days didn't have liquid assets. It wasn't like there was a massive banking system. You didn't have savings accounts to do this and that. From what we know of the story, they had fields. They were farmers. They had a calf. And so all of their assets are built into their property, to their farm, to their home, to the tools that they own so that they could work the land. To have a stockpile of coins in that day was not very common, and certainly not the case for a family such as this in this story. The father, to give this young man his share, he's the younger son, and according to law in those days, that he would have, if there were two, he would have received about a third of the family's wealth. The older son would have received two-thirds. Those of you who are older children, you're like, ha-ha, younger kids, that's not fair. But in those days, that's what it was. But whatever the case would be, the father would have to have sold stuff to make it work. Sold part of the family farm to give it to this young man. And what is worse, he takes the money and leaves. This is such a blatant disregard of family, of home, you see, in those days, like in a lot of parts of the world today, extended families lived near each other, shared property together, benefited from each other being near each other. You know, we're going to take care of the nieces and nephews. Even now, if you are an international student, when you come here, often you make money and you find a job here and you're sending money home, sending money home to help support your family or to help support impoverished communities where you came from. We support our families financially as a family unit, as an extended family unit. What does this guy do? He takes the money and removes it completely from the family system so that no one else can benefit. Not his cousins, not his nephews and nieces, not his aunts and uncles, whoever else might be a part of that family system, it's gone. 
that money is gone. See you later, family. I'm out. This is a complete rejection of that family and what that family stood for, that family's way of life, working the land, caring for the fields. The wayward child of this parable takes the money and splits the generational wealth which they had built up together has been cut down and then wasted in extravagant living, in wasteful living. One of the reasons why we call the story the prodigal son is the prodigal means extravagant or wasteful or lavish. There's other lavishness going on here in the story which we'll talk about next week or the week after. But this child wastes it and it is gone. In short, this young man wants to do things his way for his own sake and for his own purposes. That's kind of how we as Christians often characterize the human condition, what we call sin. We just want to do things our way. We want to go our own way. We want to pursue whatever makes us feel good in the moment. We want to pursue our pleasures and desires. And pleasures and desires by themselves are not a bad thing. But when they become the center of our attention, when our thoughts are wrapped around those at the expense of other people, when we turn our back on home for the sake of those things, that's when we become that wayward child It's in all of us. Our youngest, she's almost two. She'll be two in a week and one day. She's a cute little girl most of the time. (laughs) But there are times when, my word, she can get surprisingly defiant. Sometimes she sees her older brother, she has three older brothers, playing with something, And she wants it. And she'll walk right up to them and grab it from their hand. And as soon as they say, no, you can't have that, take it back, then she throws a fit. She she wants what she wants. Selfishness, self-absorbedness. It's basic to human existence. It is part of the human condition. We all, like sheep, have gone astray because we look at ourselves and we say, I want to do whatever I want to do. Don't tell me what to do. I feel like a teen... We're about about to embark on a 17-year journey of teenage years. My wife and I are taking a deep breath. As soon as our oldest turns 13 in January, from the time that he's done... And the time the little one is done, it's going to be a 17-year journey. (laughs) Pray for us. But it's not just little kids. It's not just our defiant teenage years, which we all went through. It is all of us that have this sort of streak of wanting to do whatever makes us feel good. It's the reason why sometimes we don't help when we should. It's the reason why when we see other people in need or in suffering, it's a little bit too much of an inconvenience for us to get involved, so we don't. 
it is because we are concerned about ourselves. This wayward child rejected the family, and what else he does is his, in coming back, his motivations are not particularly clear. Mixed motivations. What do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. When I was in college, I was really into this girl. Her name was Maureen. She is now my wife. I was a little bit dense. I didn't know that she was into me, and you know, um, she kind of picked up on the fact that I might be into her, and you know, we were kind of doing this dance. Um, but we were both student leaders in our uh, university fellowship when we were in college, and she was the fellowship's president, and I was the worship leader and large group coordinator, which is like the service planner. And we were, when we were in leadership together, we kind of had to figure out, oh, we need to all attend small groups, right? We knew that there was this one young lady who was starting out as a small group leader, and she was bright. She was a great uh, young woman of God, a great leader, but she was new to it. And we also knew that there was going to be somebody, by virtue of where they lived in the dorm system, that was going to be in her small group, and he was special. I mean, he was super strong personality, a bit of a chauvinist. And we're like, okay, he's trying to follow Jesus too, so what we're going to do is I'm going to go to that small group. And I'm just going to be there to buffer a little bit, to kind of help make things a little bit smoother, make it a little bit easier on her. I don't want her, her this young small group leader, to have to deal with that. And I was like, but I don't know if I could be there all the time, so maybe I can ask Maureen to come and be a part of this small group too. Now, truth be told, we both needed to be there, but I had other motivations, right? I wanted to be in small group with Maureen because she was cute. And I liked her, and I wanted her to be there so that we could spend time together. We were busy, you know, so I wanted, like, well, let's kind of, like, sit together, and I could sit next to her maybe, you know. I, it was mixed motivation. Some of it was real, like, pure, like, legit reasons. On the other hand, you know, I wanted, I wanted to be around her. Mixed motivations. It happens to all of us. Usually, we don't just have one thing or one reason why we do something. There could be multiple reasons. So why am I getting at this? In this story, I think that this young man has mixed motivations. Within this parable, I think there are a, a mix of things like desperation, of selfishness, of wanting to have things again, practical reason, real, you know what, I'm going to die like this, so I better go do something else. Maybe he was really sorry, or maybe he was just trying to survive. We don't know. The manner in which this wayward child returns has been hotly debated by scholars for a long time. Some people take the traditional view that he really is repentant. He's coming down on his knees. But you know what? We cannot read tone of voice into this now that we're reading it so many years later. That's one of the problems of so, difficulties of social media. Like you tweet something or you put something on Facebook, you can't put inflection in there. You can't put your sly little grin when you're making a joke. And then, you know, nobody gets it and then people are mad. Right? What if this story was read differently? I, 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 bear with me on this, okay? What if he's, you know, he's there in the pigsty and he's kind of thinking about what's going to happen next and he thinks, hmm... How many of my father's hands, hired servants, have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? 
I will set out and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you. And he's kind of rolling his eyes. I'm not worthy to be called your son. What if that was his approach? At least when he's thinking it. And when he gets there, oh, he's very serious. We don't know. That part of the story, the, what, the things that would let us know exactly his posture, which is the next part of the story, what his life is like after he's been welcomed home, we don't get it. We don't get that part of the story. It's left vague. The tone matters, but we don't know what that tone is. My point is this. What if he's putting up a front? What if he hadn't fully repented? I think that question is left out there intentionally because it highlights what the father does anyway. It should matter what the motivations are because if he's coming back just because he's desperate, that feels different than if he's coming back and he's really repentant. If my older son decides he's going to do the laundry, well, one, I'm thrilled no matter what. It's just like, great, thanks for pitching in. And then, but if it turns out it's just because he doesn't have enough underwear and he needs to clean it, okay, I understand. But what if he had enough clothes and he just wanted to do it to be helpful? That feels very different, doesn't it? When you're desperate to do something, of course you embrace what people do out of desperation, but sometimes there's a different tone. But the vagueness of the child's motivations, disposition, is what makes this story so remarkable to me. When I make mistakes, when I fall short, when I do something that I should not do, when I'm too quick with my temper, when I'm not acting out of kindness and grace, I don't usually say sorry and then really like go through this whole thing where I'm like really trying to change. I say sorry and try to move on. I'm not always motivated by wanting to do the hard work of growing and changing. Mostly, I want to get out of whatever situation my stupidity landed me in. And you know what? From the father in this story, that doesn't seem to matter. There is no, how dare you show your face here again? How dare you have done what you have done? Are you truly sorry or are you just putting up a front? Are you going to make up for this? How are you going to change? No. There's none of that. What we see is welcome, embrace, and joy. And what is more, all of this comes before any sense of restoration in the story, any sense of change from this young man, the welcome, embrace, and joy comes first. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to dig a little bit more into the story. But friends, this is what is at the heart of what we believe as Christians, that God gives us and offers to us an extravagant love without condition. The story of this younger child is a story of a wayward child that is being invited back home. It's a story that's a mess of vagaries of how sin and motivations are mixed and unclear. 
how sometimes we're just out to save our own hides. But this is the beauty of what we believe. Being welcomed home, receiving grace and love is not dependent on the quality of our saris or the trajectory of our repentance. If it was, I and I suspect all of us would be hopeless. God's love is not conditional like that, dependent upon our motivations. God's love is available to all of us, no matter where you have been, no matter what you have done, no matter what the internal dialogue is in our heads that nobody else sees, no matter the color of our skin, no matter the wealth that we have, our level of education, our gender, God loves us all. We are like that wayward child. Even those who have journeyed in the faith for a long time, no one's perfect. We have all strayed. But to all of us, the invitation is simple. It's unconditional and it is pure. No matter how desperate or how genuine, God's offer is there to come home. Come home. The kind of home that you should have, where you are loved, cared for, and embraced. Come home, wayward children. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful that your grace and forgiveness does not depend on me. That I could still be a mess. I could still be stumbling over things, doing the wrong things, saying the wrong things, offending people. And yet you still love me. I can lose my temper and you still love me. I can be unkind or ungenerous. I could sin by things that I have done or things that I have left undone. Yet your grace is sufficient. Thank you, Lord, for inviting me home. Thank you for inviting all of us home. Amen.